0: Romans chapter 6, verses 19 to 23, and uh, God's inspired and inerrant word reads, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weeks of your flesh. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your body's parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as we we quiet our hearts and expecting to hear from you, Lord, I do pray that your spirit would illuminate this text, would illuminate our hearts and minds uh, to what you would have for us this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen this or that. <clears throat> I like choices. I like options. Probably most of us do like choices and we do like options. We like a this or a that, uh, but maybe not too many options or too many choices. I know I, for one, with with whatever uh, I have going on, sometimes I'm so overwhelmed with a choice, whatever it may be, that I literally have to tell Cheryl, listen, Cheryl, you're going to have to choose. I cannot even possibly make this decision. I become very overwhelmed with choices, and yet we do like choices, do we not? And that seems to be kind of what Paul is saying here in these last few verses as I was just looking at this uh, last week and kind of circling some things uh, And it kind of seems like he has a this or that throughout this whole text. Starting in verse 19, he has just as, so now, lawlessness, righteousness. Verse 20, slave, free. Verse 22, freed, enslaved. Verse 23, wages, gift, death, life. A this or that. We see these two all the way through this text. And that's kind of uh, where we're going to go this morning is looking at a this or that, looking at only two options That we have before us. And I do want to start out in the 19th verse um, and just look at the beginning sentence there. I call it the zealous exhortation, the zealous exhortation, because Paul now is giving us an exhortation. He's giving us a responsibility. He's giving us a job here, if you will. And he starts out in verse 19 by saying that I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. You know, what Paul is saying is Paul is is acknowledging and realizing that here are some folks that they have a lack of confidence. There is a feeling of inadequacy uh, that these people have. There is a sense of helplessness. There is a a weakness in judgment. There is a, a lack of spiritual insight or maybe a little bit of a lack of spiritual discernment. And some do look at this sentence right here. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And some commentators and others do like to say that Paul is inserting that sentence here because he's kind of giving an excuse or or almost apologizing for some of the depth and some of that that he is saying. And I certainly wouldn't be in that camp, if you will. And I don't think that's what Paul is doing at all. I think what Paul is doing is acknowledging that the the truths of God and the mysteries of God can be very deep, and they indeed are very deep, and how can we possibly understand it all? And so as Paul tries to give meaning and definition to that, he does come across sometimes as very hard and very dense. Even as Peter himself had acknowledged all the way back in uh, 2 Peter, or forward if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter said something to that effect, that in all of Paul's letters, there are some things that are very hard to understand. Peter says about Paul, which the untaught, the unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures. And I think Paul or Peter is acknowledging two things. Peter is acknowledging first that some of the, the writings of Paul are indeed dense, of course, and are hard. And he's also realizing that this gives opportunity uh, for for some who have who have ill intentions to maybe distort some of the things that Paul is saying. And sometimes we ourselves can even look at Paul and look at the teachings of Scripture and wonder, well, we can't make sense of it. And so we just kind of want to maybe throw up our hands in a sense, if it will, and say, well, this is just too hard of a text or too hard of a Scripture to understand. And I don't think we can do that. God doesn't give us the right to do that instead of throwing up our hands and saying, I can't understand what Paul is saying, I can't understand what the scriptures are teaching, it should cause us to dig even deeper into scripture and, and, and to see what is being said. Scripture can be indeed twisted in a way uh, that we can have the outcome be whatever my agenda may be. We all have a belief system. And we can make some of the hard teachings come out to say whatever we wanted to say. And I think that was nothing new for us today, that, that there are some that do that, just as it was in Paul's day. Jude 4, you know, uh, the half-brother of Jesus uh, says something similar to this effect when he says in, in Jude verse 4, uh, ungodly persons, they turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior. They turn the grace of God into indecent behavior, or in other words, they turn the grace of God into a license or into an excuse to live as they want to live. And People have always used the grace of God and the love of God, right, the grace of God and the love of God to live how they want to live and to do what they want to do. Many times we can hear that in conversation with those who may be, are living in such a way that they should not be, they soon cite grace and love as their reason uh, for doing that. And Paul, uh, back at the beginning of of this letter to the Romans, which is to a specific church, but it's also very much of a circular letter, I do think. We get to the end of the letter, and we see it's it's very specifically targeted to a group of people, but the beginning of it is written very much in a general sense, and and I think that's what Paul is is alluding to in in the third chapter in verse 8 where he himself acknowledges that he is being accused of saying something similar to that effect. When he says that, why not just say? He's saying this sarcastically. Why not just say, as some are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let's do evil so that good may come from it. Let's do evil so that good may come from it. And we look at this text and we look at some of the things, especially in Romans. And it's not going to get any easier for us as we go through Romans. Some of the things in there kind of go against some of our belief system. And that's what I'm asking you here. And Paul acknowledges that here by he's saying that. He's not insulting them by saying their weakness of flesh. He's not insulting them in this aspect. But I think he's encouraging them to dig even deeper. Scripture can be hard to understand. And we may not always like what it says. But we must stay true to what Scripture says. We must dig deep. We must follow Scripture wherever Scripture may lead us. That is our responsibility as people. And I think that's what Paul is saying here as he's wrapping up the sixth chapter of Romans. And here in the 19th verse of this sixth chapter, Paul is simply acknowledging the need to continue to learn, the need to continue to grow in our spiritual life. We must not be lazy, but we must Dig in to Bible study, even on those hard and difficult and challenging passages. So I think that's what Paul is doing as he starts verse 19. And as he's bringing this whole thing to a summation in the sixth chapter, he's acknowledging that some things are difficult to understand. But he moves on from that. Uh, you can see that with the use of the word for. So he's moving on from that and saying, For just as you presented the parts, he's, so he's setting up a comparison. He says, Just as you've used the parts of your body, or just as you be physical parts, or be it mental parts, just as you use any part of your life uh, as a way uh, to be slaves of impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in even further lawlessness. He's saying, just as you have made yourself available. Remember last week we looked at the word presented. Just as you make yourself available, as you make yourself accessible, as you put your forth, as you put yourself forth for someone else's use. Just as you've done that in a sense for lawlessness, and you will get on to that. And saying, so now present. So he got the just as the so now. So now present yourselves uh, in the same way. For a sense of righteousness. Just as you've made yourself available in those areas, do the same thing uh, for, for righteousness. But before we move on, I, I do want to you to know, notice here in, in verse 19 that we see a progression of this lawlessness that he sees. He's, he's got it as slaves as impurity to lawlessness, comma resulting in further lawlessness, comma, and then he's going to move on. Uh, and so we see this progression of lawlessness that is happening in this verse. And how could I not notice that and notice also as we look around today? You know, as we look around today, we hear so much of the lament upon the lawlessness, upon lawlessness, upon lawlessness of today. And so it seems like an obvious uh, point or an obvious place for me to draw that comparison to our current culture, the morality of our current culture. And at times, we hear people talk about how things were uh, before the flood, the times of Noah. We hear things talked about, how oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, things are getting as bad as it was back then. But I don't know. I don't know that I'm necessarily in that particular camp. I mean, man, people are so good. We are so smart that I'm wondering that if we're not more so versus turning into lawlessness, though that's still present today like it always has been, but that we're doing it in such a, a way that we have become our own God in, in essence because we can figure everything out. We know everything. We're, we're, we're extremely intelligent. We're extremely smart. And so as you think about it in those terms of our current culture and what's happening and the things that, man, that men and women are capable of doing, I'm not so sure that we're not closer to Babel than we are closer to Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood. I mean, when you think about the Tower of Babel, we like that story in Genesis chapter 11, right? And that the people set out, and, and, and the Bible tells us there that, that people collected uh, uh, clay or dirt or some type of soil, baked it in a furnace, I mean, they became... Uh, They became architects, they became engineers, they became construction workers for the first time that we haven't really recorded and they took those bricks that they fired, the, the, the mud that they fired up and made bricks and they stuck them together with tar that was in the land and they were building this tower and they were doing a great job Why do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that God says, whoa, look at these people. Look what they're doing. If we don't put a stop to this, there is nothing that they cannot accomplish or they cannot do. I look around and I see that more so than I see Sodom and Gomorrah, more more than I see the times before the flood. I just look around and what the the capabilities that we have to do, that, that we can do as people the stuff that we can do is absolutely mind-boggling and mind-blowing, That I'm not so sure uh, that maybe God is going to revisit the Tower of Babel versus some of these other cities and some of these other places. And when you look around and you see that we're not becoming more diverse as a people, we're becoming, the, the polarity is becoming greater and greater, where it's certainly becoming this and that. It's becoming very much cut and dry, two-sided. The variety is gone. That I wonder sometimes that maybe God needs to confuse our language just a little bit to kind of spread us up or split us up again, you know. And so when you think about lawlessness, I think lawlessness can, can be thought of in a way that we like to think about it, especially as church people, bad people out there, right, as church people. But I like to think of it a bit differently, that there is so much that we can do that I wonder, do we even need God anymore? And maybe lawlessness is turning in that direction, more so in the other direction. And I'm not sure, but I like to think that that seems to be uh, another avenue or another angle that we can take of this lawlessness versus just condemning constantly the morality of the culture, which we certainly have uh, plenty uh, of material to work with when it comes to that. But I think there's this other side also, that as people, I wonder sometimes, uh, is there even a need uh, for God that we have? I want you to move on from verse 19 and look at verse 20. And in verse 20, we see the unconscious ignorance, and obviously ignorance is bliss. We We hear some of that type of language. And it seems to be quite evident here in verse 20 that that seems to be what Paul is referring to when he's calling this out here in this verse. Because in verses 20 and 21, uh, Paul gives us a reason to support the exhortation of verse 19. When in verse 20, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. When you were free of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. But, But again, I want you to notice the past tense within this verse that Paul is speaking about. When you were slaves, you're no longer slaves, but when you were There is a past tense that Paul is writing to these Christian people here in this sense. And I think also, as we think about the freedoms that we have in Christ and how that can be abused, uh, Paul also wrote to the problematic church there in Corinth when he had said that such were some of you. He had a whole list of how these folks were, were being disobedient to God. And then he ends it with, such were some of you. But he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. That was a past state, and it is no longer the state that you find yourself in now. We, too, must find ourselves in that past state when we think about being slaves of sin. But second, I want you to notice what, what Paul is saying. When Paul is saying that, that when, you were, uh, uh, when you were slaves of sin, you were free uh, in relation to to righteousness, uh, Paul is not necessarily saying that when you were slaves of sin, you were free from uh, in righteousness. You can live however you want to live. That he's saying that you are no longer a slave of sin, but but when you were in righteousness, you were free. In the relation to righteousness that does that's not a free pass that Paul is giving the folks here. Uh, free does not mean that they're free from responsibility. They are free. They do have responsibilities. There is, there is culpability in that, that they are responsible for, for how they're acting and how they're living out their life, even as Paul said in Romans chapter 1. He says that you're without excuse because the evidence of God is within each and every single person. And so I think that's what Paul is saying here, that they are free from righteousness, but that doesn't mean that they're free from responsibility, free from those responsibilities. And verse 16 makes that quite clear. Uh, that we had covered in the past, that there is a cost to being a slave of sin, and that cost is death. Think about this. Slaves of sin are free in relation to righteousness, free from the benefits of righteousness, right? And so if they're slaves of sin, they're free from righteousness, they're free from the benefits of that righteousness. And and here in, in verse 20, I'm not sure that we may see one of the greatest enemies of Christianity that we have today. And that is this, 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 um, that is this sense of an unconscious ignorance. There are good, and there are moral, and there are ethical, and there are that are religious people. They are and they're not Christian, though. In Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In Romans 3.20, Paul had written that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, again, thinking of what I had said previously about the Tower of Babel. There are very good and there are very moral people who do wonders for society. We acknowledge that and we see that and we see them. They're well-respected. They're well-spoken of, and they do indeed make the world a better place without a doubt. But who controls such a person's life? Who controls this man's life? Is it Christ and him crucified, or is it himself or herself? His ideas, his thoughts, his philosophy, he's governed by his own ideas, and he's become his own God of his own creation. I think that's probably a greater danger to Christianity and then a lot of the thoughts of pre-flood behavioral of people and during Sodom and Gomorrah we like to pick on that city. I think there's this idea that people are indeed, they're good, they're moral, they care about humanity, they care about society, and they have become and made them their self God. And yet there is a fine line of distinction in this that's alive and well i think with even in our, with our churches is it not when we look at the person's behavior as good as moral as responsible but that doesn't mean that they're any closer to god than that bad person before the flood or a bad person behaving like the people in silent gomorrah this is a fine distinction fine line of distinction that has a great consequence This is a fine line of distinction that determines a person's eternal destination. This is a fine line of distinction that can ultimately confuse us with our our status before God. We can see people that have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They have these things as all Christians should and do. But sometimes we see that in folks that are not Christian. And I think that is something that we must be very, very careful in in 2022 and going forward. And so if I were to ask you, if you are indeed justified in the eyes of God, how would you answer that question? I mean, I assume you would say you are. I would hope you would say you are. But if I said said you are, I would say, how is that? How are you justified in the eyes of God? Any answer outside of the work completely and totally that Christ has done on our behalf, anything outside of that, then I would want to call that into question. It is nothing that we have done, and it is everything that Christ has done. I can be good, I can be moral, but that doesn't save me. And yet a saved person is good and is moral indeed. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Paul is saying that these folks here are free from that. Their mind isn't even upon that in verse 20. And so in verse 21, we see the, the obvious benefit of being free, if you call it a benefit, a result of, of being free from this righteousness. There is a benefit that comes from that. This word benefit. This word benefit, we must think of it in terms of of a balance sheet. We must look at the books. What is the gain? What is the loss? What does the expense column say? What does the income column say? That is what's being thought of here when Paul is saying, look at the benefit of that person's life. That person's life will ultimately... Uh, benefit positively or negatively that I want to go to the book of of the letter excuse me uh, of revelation and I know it's a dangerous letter to read we have to be careful with it because it's uh, it is written uh, in in circular fashion and it is written in such subjective language in and, and picturesque language, that sometimes we have to be careful with it. But as you get to 20 and 21 especially, at least we have the sense that there will be this great white throne of judgment that is going to come and that is going to happen. And in, Genesis, or in, in, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 20, 11, uh, uh, John here, who wrote this letter by way of a vision that he had, and it said, then I saw a great white throne. And him, speaking of Jesus who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled. Earth and heaven. What is that? It's not earth and heaven, literally, but it's it's all peoples. Every single person fled from this. No one found a place, for they found no other place to escape this judgment throne. In verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, the kings of the earth and the peasants of the earth. Everyone had to come before this judgment, the great people of the world and the small people of the world, all standing before the throne and the books, notice plural, and the books were opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that are written in the books according to the deeds." according to the deeds. There are two sets of books, if you will, that, that 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 I read that John is giving us here that he was shown. And there is a set of books that that determines a person's eternal destination, heaven or hell. And there's another set of books that records the deeds, the benefits of how we have lived in relation to sin and how we have lived in relation to righteousness. And I think what we see here in our win-loss column, we can certainly see, though, that there is a place for degrees of punishment and degrees of of eternal life, right, of rewards uh, that we have, and that it's only those... Uh, who have the benefit and ha- of, 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 of thinking about righteousness versus being stuck in their life of slavery, they too will have a, a benefit, degrees of that, just as those who are Christians, just as those who live such as God live or God requires of us to live. I mean, when you think about, right, maybe that's confusing to you, but, but when you think about today being uh, uh, Christmas, right, um, every day is Christmas for the whole month of October, actually before Thanksgiving. Uh, but nonetheless, that's my own issues. So, right? So, the, today's Christmas, so, and it says it's the reason, and we are told that Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, why? Why is Jesus the reason for the season? Matthew 21, tell, or ch- verse 1, 21, chapter 1, verse 21, tells us that, that when Mary was told that she was going to give birth to a child, the angel told Mary, you name this child Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. I mean, isn't the obvious question there? Who is his people? Who is his people? I think we have an answer here in verse 21 of who his people are. Therefore, what benefit were you then? Deriving from the things that you are now ashamed of. Deriving of the things that, that you received Uh, from the way that you were living your life that you are now ashamed of. His people, his people, I believe, are those folks right here who are ashamed of their past life. Those who have shamed, and with that shame, with that guilt, comes repentance, comes remorse. Those are who the people of God are, that Jesus came to save them from their sins. Those who understand this or that. Those who understand their past life and how it relates to their current life in the eyes of God. And also in verse 21, we have the warning uh, in verse 21 for the outcome, for the result of the way that you lived your life prior. If you haven't come to this place of repentance is death, is death. And Jeremiah eight twelve gives us a sad picture that I think is certainly applicable for us here today also. And that is where Jeremiah writes there. And he asks the question, were they ashamed because of the, the abomination that they had done? They were, not, they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed and they did not even know how to be ashamed. They were so far living within their happy self, so far from God in a way they might have been good, moral, and ethical people, but they weren't even. They had no thought of even how to be ashamed as their life compared to God. And so Jeremiah continues. Therefore, there will be among those who fall at that time of their punishment, they will all collapse. I think when we think of Jesus as the reason for the season, that He came to save His people from their sins. His people are those who have shame, those who have guilt, those who have remorse, but they don't wallow and stay with that. But it forces them, it drives them to repentance. We live in a culture that we don't want to talk about shame, we don't want to talk about guilt, but I offer to you without it, I'm not sure you can come all the way to Christ. The result of the benefit of their actions, those who, who did not repent, who do not have a remorse, is death and this brings us to verse 22 and the enormous transformation the enormous transformation you know but paul starts with but now and as the great doctor martin lloyd jones says he says thanks god god for the butts of the bible and here we have another one but now having been freed from sin paul is saying this isn't you this is not you at all. In fact, in 321, Paul said something similar. In the first couple of chapters of Romans, he kept pounding on the people, telling us how bad we were, and then he turns the corner with a, but now apart from the law. We're no longer living under this law, and he does that here again. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the outcome of those things of verse 21 that we were just talking about is not for these people. It is not for those who come all the way to Christ. You have been set free from, from sin. The Christian is a person who has undergone an enormous, and it's a big, it's a power, an enormous transformation. A Christian is someone who has undergone this, this, this enormous transformation. Jeremiah also wrote about the Ethiopian. Can the Ethiopian change his skin color? Well, obviously, no. Can the leper change his spots? Obviously, he cannot do that. And what's Jeremiah driving at? That we can't do it on our own, but it's only God who can do it. Now, in the world of houseplants uh, that, that I'm involved with, uh, by default or by, I'm not sure, by choice, I'm not sure. But anyways... Uh, my wife has all her houseplants. But there's one that she really likes, and, and she now, now has. It, it, it's, a, it's a prized possession of hers, admit, and, and many people like it, collecting it in the plant world. It's a philodendron pink princess. A philodendron pink princess is prized for its variegation within its leaf. It's a nice green plant, but the variegation within the plant has pinkness to it, and everybody likes that pinkness that is within it. It's a natural plant. And there's a philodendron that looks very similar to this one, but it does not have the pink in it. But it is called a, a, a philodendron pink Congo. And the philodendron pink Congo has been manipulated. It is a counterfeit, it is a phony, it is a knockoff of the pink princess because you put it in the greenhouse and you gas it and it changes the top part of the leaves pink. Are you with me? You're not. I'm getting somewhere with this. <laughs> Yes, my world. So, uh, so in, in this pink Congo, it looks pretty, and it is a nice plant, uh, but it is a fake. It is a fraud. It is not real. And what happens over time? The pink Congo reverts back to being all green. And I would offer to you this morning that that is the Christian, is it not? Th- that there are, there are those, you look at their life, and they're the pink princess. And then you discover later that, well, maybe, maybe they're the pink pink Congo. And it's not for us to know or us necessarily to tell. Uh, but I do think that we need to be careful. There are those, and there are times where I want to offer to you that we do slip up. He or she, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. And sometimes we revert back just a little bit to being a bit more green than pink. But how do we know the authentic from the non-authentic? Because there comes a time of coming back, right? That person isn't completely gone, but they come back. That is how you can recognize a fraud from an authentic Christian person. And ultimately, how that works out throughout the course of a lifetime, we don't know except for the end of that person's life. But you derive your benefit it's an outcome. It's a fruit. It's an agricultural term. You, there is a harvest. There's one from lawlessness. There is a benefit that re, is resulted from lawlessness. There is a benefit that results from being a, a, a slave to righteousness, it's becoming more and more dedicated to God, and the outcome of, is eternal life. Outcome, there is telos, is, is end. It would be better said that the end of the, is eternal life, at the end of that life is eternal life. Just as Paul's told to the church in Galatians, where he says, he says that, for the one who sows <clears throat> to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. The sowing, we shouldn't necessarily see that as works. We should see it more as an attitude of the heart and the mind. Paul could not be more clear. Just because you are under grace. Just because you are not under the law in no way justifies anyone to indulge in a life of sin. Living under grace does not justify anyone to live a life of sin. The wages, it's a service. It's, it's a military term. It's, it's the rations that is paid to soldiers. And that Paul is saying here in verse 23, that is death. But he says the the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There is a physical death, yes, as in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, take of the fruit and that day you shall surely die, but even more so, there is that eternal death that Paul is calling to the attention here in this 23rd verse. In Romans chapter one twenty three, 23 where he says They know the ordinances. They know the requirements of God, that those who are practicing, those who are carrying out such things are worthy of death. They do the same. They even approve of those who practice those things. We see that in people, and we can recognize and acknowledge that. And it is easy to shy away from that. But I would offer to you that we need to be careful. I think there's a greater danger for the church, for for those who are good, moral, productive full of society, who name the name of Christ, but haven't come all the way, we must be careful. And that I believe is what Paul is saying, and he will get to that a little bit further in this letter. But there is another way. It doesn't have to be this way of wages of sin is death. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus wrote there that enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is narrow, that leads to destruction, and there are few who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find that. John 14, 6, you hear me quoted all the time, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We must have that seared onto our brain. You know, uh, just last night I stumbled upon this because it was just released, at least that it was brought to my attention. I seen it. So, of course, I had to open it up and read through it. But it's the state of the Bible instead the of this theology in 2020 and 2022. And, and reading through those documents, just skimming through them quite quickly, I, I came across this, the state of theology, and this was alarming. The state of theology, uh, it said that the statement was given. This is for evangelical Christians. I don't know why we have even, evangelical Christians, those who identify that way. Uh, the question was posed, that the statement was uh, post, God accepts the worship of all religions, be it Christianity, be it Islam, be it Judaism, and all other religions. God accepts them all. Those who identify as evangelical Christians, 56%. 56% agree with that statement. They agree with that statement. That's scary. Half of you. If you're a sampling of the greater society, which I trust you're not, half of you would agree with that. And how can we not think? We can't be that naive, right? There's somebody here who thinks that way. There's somebody. Another question or statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelical Christians agreed with that statement. 46%, 46%, I mean 43%, excuse me. That's alarming. That's scary. I'm not sure what to do with that other than continue to cite John 14:6. We either believe the Bible or we do not. In the, in, in the state of the Bible, that's a whole other avenue. But, but um, I, I will just add this as a footnote. When you think of the, the generations, boomers, Xers, millennials, Gen Z, I often talk about the next generation and the confidence that I have in those who are 25 and under, uh, especially. uh, When you watch the charts and you see the pattern, more and more and more, those are turning back to the Bible and to the God of the Bible. That is amazing, is it not? There is hope. The world is not that bad. It is. uh, But it's not gone. And these 25 and under, we need to have hope and confidence and trust in them. Well we see that the gracious gift of God was freely given and graciously given. And we receive this gracious gift by the obedience, and that may sound like works, but I think obedience forms out of or flows out of our desire and our love for God. And Paul ends with this. Paul ends in verse 23. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Savior. Lord is his title, Master. Jesus is both Savior and Master. As we think about Jesus being the reason for the season, Jesus is both Lord and Master. He cannot be your Master. He cannot be your Savior if he is not your master. You cannot be a slave to two masters. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. If Jesus is not your master, he cannot be your Savior. There can be no compromises. There can be no compromises. And as we like to do so much, we like to, as we sink all our tablets, our devices together, so too we want to sink all our beliefs together. There can be no compromises. People want Jesus to be savior. And people will name Jesus as Savior all the time. But Jesus cannot be Savior if he is not Master. Jesus is indeed the reason for the season. But if he is not your Lord and your Master, then Jesus is no reason at all for the season. There is no watering down. We think often of being a child of God, being a son of God, being a daughter of God. We like that terminology for well-being. But we must see ourselves as a slave of God. We are indeed a slave of God. You are either this or you are that. You're a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. There are no other options or other ways. And in verse 23, we do have one of the, the greatest messages or the greatest statements of the gospel of salvation where we see it in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are only two possibilities for every person on the planet. Wages of sin is death, for gracious gift of God is eternal life. That's it. This is the gospel. It is this or it is that. You either build your house on the sand or you build it upon the rock. You either enter the narrow gate or you enter the wide gate. Either you enter the broad path or the narrow path. Either you are a slave to sin or you are a slave to God. If you have not chosen to be all, for, all in for Christ, by default, we have chosen to be all in for the world. I know that's interesting message maybe coming into the Christmas season from this particular text of Romans. But I think we need to keep that in perspective as we can get so lost and distorted in the next couple of weeks as we think about the celebrations and all that we do and think about who this cute little baby in the manger is and what he has done for us and that he will have final say and that I can't make things say whatever I want it to say. I can't make it fit into my set of belief systems, but I must align with that. No matter how hard some of the reading and the teachings of the Scripture must be, we don't throw up our hands. We dig deeper. We don't dig deeper by ourselves. We dig deeper within community such as this. Father, I pray. Lord, I pray that as we think about these final verses of chapter 6, as we think about the hard sayings and the teachings of Paul, sometimes I don't know that there is hard teaching are hard to understand, that it is hard to accept. And I pray, Lord, that we would indeed see ourselves, and we are your slave, but we do see ourselves as your son, as your daughter, as your child. And we understand that you are our master, you are our savior, and it is that, and it is only that that can bring any joy or peace or happiness to our life. I pray, Father, as we go through this Christmas season, and everyone carries something different with it. So for some, it is a, a time of great sorrow. I pray that we don't get so lost in our own festivities that we, that we miss out or that we lose or we overlook opportunity to indeed share why you are the reason for this season. So I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.